All right, you're on camera. So, last week, this is a repeat crowd, so we'll just briefly, briefly review. We spoke about Rav Henkin, and the main point uh, that I thought was significant when discussing Rav Henkin was that he represents a world that isn't modern and a world that isn't yeshivish. Okay? And again, I think in our world today, everybody sort of lines up as either in the modern Orthodox camp or the yeshivish camp. And there was this world in Eastern Europe and in America that was neither modern nor yeshivish. And I showed you through a few of his rulings how Rav Henkin reflected that. And I postulated that perhaps, right, Freiburg disagreed with me, but that perhaps someday that information may be valuable because a lot of times I think people, a lot of kids, and again I work in a lot of schools, high school age kids, a lot of kids get more religious, they go to Israel, and they come back and they say, listen, I'm really into Torah study and mitzvahs. Where's that action at? Mainly in the Haredi world. But if they study these ideas, or you could at least show them this, then it's not clear, okay, yes, there's a lot there. There's some in our world, and there's some in this world that operationally is modern, even though ideologically it isn't. Okay, so it may be, maybe it is, maybe it will, maybe it'll be relevant, maybe it won't be relevant, but certainly what we uncovered last week was we uncovered a world that's lost, a world that's not modern, not yeshivish. We discussed a few issues that demonstrate that one is view of Zionism. He was anti-Zionist pre, you know, the state of Israel. Once the state came into being, Rav Henkin, if you read his writings, sounds like a great Zionist, okay? And he was very angry at those who detracted from supporting Israel in any form or fashion. His style of learning, I mentioned. Yeshivish people, and we're going to learn Rav Moshe, and he's classic. You learn what's called Nashim and Nezikin. You learn about torts and damages, the laws of women, uh, marriage, divorce, why it's not very practical for a kid who's 12 or 13 or 14, trust me, I get this complaint all the time from them. But it's conceptual, it's traditional. Rav Henkin was against that. Rav Henkin says you need to know the practical. That would make him not yeshivish. We discussed this tshuva, which we'll briefly refer to. I think the last thing we'll do tonight is we'll compare Rav Moshe's tshuva to Rav Henkin's tshuva about Bas Mitzvah. And his attitude towards feminism was pragmatic. Again, he didn't embrace it. It wasn't the Sridei Eish who embraced it, but he wasn't anti it. Like we'll see Rav Moshe doesn't like Bas Mitzvahs, but because it's so stupid, he permits it, right? He saw value in it, as we saw in the Tshuva last week. He saw that this is a great opportunity to bring women back into the, into the fold and connect them. And also, we didn't do the Tshuva about Kaddish. He says the same thing about women saying Kaddish. And again, you've got to put him in his historical context. This was not today. This was 50, 60 years ago, so it was a big deal. And the last point was Hebrew language. Modern Orthodox believe that you learn Hebrew because that's what they do in the state of Israel, and we learn Hebrew. It's not a religious thing per se. If you go to a yeshiva high school, they're learning Hebrew as a secular language. There may be some religious overtones, and if you go to a yeshiva school, Hebrew's not studied. Rav Henkin felt you should learn in your native language, 
be in English, be it Yiddish, you know, in his time. But the review class should be in Hebrew because he saw great value for Hebrew as a tool to study Torah, right? Also a different position. So that's just a very brief review for the few of you who weren't here. I can also give you the Rav Henkin papers at the end also. So now we're on to the most you know, preeminent post in America. Rav Henkin is the, Henkin's father? Grandfather. Grand, so That's her grandfather-in-law. Yeah. So, now we're going to discuss Ramosha Feinstein. Now, without a doubt, Ramosha Feinstein's impact and influence is far greater than Rav Henkin. Rav Henkin, we basically saved them from oblivion, hopefully. Okay? Um, can I actually get an outline? Yeah, I have my own notes, but I'd like to just see what you guys have. Okay. So, Ramosha Feinstein did something that I think is phenomenal, and it's a testament to his greatness and why he will be studied for posterity. He came to America in 1936. There were smatterings of a yeshiva world, and more of that came you know, during the war. There was some modern Orthodox, and there was some non-observant Orthodox, right? We don't have that so much today, but there was. And he basically was able to juggle all three groups and be the posake for all three groups. And that is no small feat because after him, nobody's been able to do that. I don't think there's a posake today. Maybe someone like Rav Asher Weiss, you know, who's coming to Boca, you should definitely try to hear him if you can. Um, a little bit, there's overlap between yeshivish and modern, but not in the way that Rav Moshe. Predating Rav Moshe, Rav Chaim Ozer Grzynski would have fit that bill. Uh, in Europe, he died in 1940, I think, at Ravit Inspector, who YU's named after. But nobody's been like this. So he really did something very incredible. So let's briefly do the biography. Again, I'm not real into that because you can Google that. and You don't need to come out. You could sit in your home and do that in your sweatpants. You don't need to come out and get dressed for that. Okay, so we'll do the biography very briefly. Uh, he was born in 1895. He died in 1986. I remember when he died. Uh, he lived in White Russia, like Rav Henkin. He studied a bit with Rav Zalman Meltzer, like Rav Henkin. Uh, but mainly, Rav Moshe Feinstein was not a product of yeshiva. He learned a little bit with Rav Zalman Meltzer, a little bit with so named Rav Pesach Pruskin, who I've actually looked a little bit at some of his farm on Gemara. But he was primarily taught by family members. And pre-World War I, many of the great rabbis, this will blow your minds, did not learn any yeshiva. Yeshivas did not engender greatness always. Um, and it's funny, when I work with kids, I always tell them, if your primary goal is to learn, be it secular studies or Torah, school's not the place to go. <laughs> Why? You could stay home, your parents could get you a tutor, and you'll learn much more. There'll be no kid throwing spitballs in the back. You'll learn more. You go really go to school to learn to work with authority and your peers. That's the main goal of school. You're not, the learning is secondary. So Ramosha learned, did not go to school, you know, really didn't go to yeshiva. He came here, as I mentioned, in 1936. The two main positions he held was, official positions, was the Rosh Yeshiva of MTJ, Mesif Tzfaris Yushalayim, which still exists, it's in Chinatown. And again, where did he live? Same neighborhood as Ravankin, the Lower East Side. 
And he was also the chairman of the Aguda. So unlike Rav Henkin, he is firmly planted in the yeshiva world. I mentioned Rav Henkin was not affiliated with Mizrahi nor Aguda. Uh, Rav Moshe was affiliated with Aguda but was able to have this juggle, halakhic juggling act of being able to work with all three groups. Who were his students? Again, unlike Rav Henkin, who mainly is known through his grandson's tshuvas, didn't really have students because he didn't really work in yeshiva. He had many great students. Rav Nisan Albert, who was a Rosh Yeshiva in YU, was probably his best student. Uh, Rav Blumenkrantz, who was a Haredi posik. Rav Shimon Eider, his two sons, Rav David and Rav Ruvain Feinstein. Um, Rav Tendler, his son-in-law, who's in YU. And Rav Greenblatt, because I want to throw one name out of the South, because we all live in the South. He was in Memphis, so us Southerners, you know, we, we play prominent too. So those were... Yeah, Rabbi Greenblatt, that's true. I didn't think of that. Right, but this is the father. So what were his publications? Rav Henkin, there were no publications. I told you, there was this project I showed you last week to gather the tshuvas all over the country. Right, I, I have those tshuvas, not many people do. There were no official tshuvas, okay? Rav Moshe was very prolific. Uh, the main work that I did brought some visuals was the Igris Moshe. This is definitely his most important work. It's six or seven volumes, depending on who you ask, because there's some debate if he wrote the last volume. Um, but these tshuvas are his most important. He wrote a parish on Gemara called Dibris Moshe, which I've studied is very, a lot of it's very complicated. Parts of it aren't, but it's not widely studied. People don't usually study it or quote it. And he wrote something called Darash Moshe, which is actually very nice and stuff on the Parsha. Those were his main publications. What were his major rulings? And then I want to get to the meat and potatoes of how he juggled. That's the focus of the class. Okay? His main rulings were about Bas Mitzvah, which we're going to read the Tshuva. Chol Yisrael, uh, everyone here knows what that is, right? There are some people, they only drink milk that a Jew supervised, right? So he ruled that you're allowed to drink milk that a non-Jew, that no Jew supervised, because we assume that when the government regulates uh, the production of milk, no non-Jew is going to put pig's milk in there because they're going to get hit with a hefty fine. And... Um, because of that fear, it's like a Jew watched it. That's basically the rights of this tshuva. Um, it isn't as novel as you think. The Chazonish actually concurs with that. Uh, Rav Henkin also concurs with that. It's not a major ruling of his. And there's other poskim. But he's like the main one. Mechitza. Um, again, we live in a world where shuls have mechitzas. And it's taught, it's a big no-no not to. Although I mentioned Rav Henkin's tshuva last week that we don't quote that there are contexts where someone could daven in a shul without a mechitza. Rav Moshe would have not agreed with that. Rav Moshe was adamant that a mechitza is a din deraisa, it's a Torah-level prohibition. And again, when we get into one of the other things I forgot to mention, besides juggling the three groups, he defined what is orthodox and what isn't. This ruling about mechitza made it very clear. Um, and there are other rulings like that. Art of, yeah. What's the Doraisa? He, what's a source? Yeah. That I don't know off the top of my head, but he does say that. Whereas others, Rav Soloveitchik, Felder's Durbanan, <coughs> Rabbi Tibor Stern, who's Lisa Ryan's grandfather, right. felt it was a minhag. 
There's a range of opinions, but the world we live in today almost goes with Derisa. Um, the ruling, I, he has a source. It's not, it's not super strong, but that's where the ruling had to go, I guess. Um, artificial insemination, he permitted it. Um, the Sat Marebi and those Hasidim who are very influenced by Kabbalah couldn't fathom the idea that a non-Jew has input into a Jewish child and they were not very happy with that tshuva but he famously wrote in that tshuva that I rule what I think is right and it doesn't matter whether people criticize me. Um, the coolest. So he, two pages side by side and if we had more time, again, this could be a class. This could be a series. This should not be one lecture. I mean, you really should open up all these tshuvas and we should study them. On one page, he rules that a microphone in a shul is Torah level prohibited. Okay? The next page, hearing aids is mutter. Now, he even acknowledges the halakhic issues are the same. Right? Again, but giving you the context, by ruling a microphone is prohibited to Risa, He's making a clear line in the sand, what is in and what is out. And again, for those of you who don't know the history, the line of orthodox and conservative was very murky. Today it's not murky, right? Nobody, if I blindfold all of you and take you into Temple Sinai, and I take those people and blindfold them and come here, they'll know the difference, right? Back then in 1930s or 40s, there were actually conservative synagogues that had mafitzas, and there are many Orthodox synagogues that did not. That's a superseding number. Right. The, the, there were concern that it was different. Many of the people, and I mentioned this tangentially, in an Orthodox shul were not Orthodox. So in the conservative shul, they're not Orthodox. In the Orthodox shul, they're not Orthodox. How different was it? So his rulings uh, on many of these matters, I believe, helped create the boundaries between these two groups. Um, this example of the microphone versus the hearing aid did it. Now how does he work the hearing aid? What he says is, one, any xera, there's different xeras why a microphone's out, because it makes a loud noise or something with a millstone on Shabbos. He says, because it's a subset of people that wear hearing aids, it's a it's a, a decree that's not applicable, so those xeras don't apply, and he threw in that if somebody's deaf or hard of hearing and they cross the street, uh, they don't want him playing Frogger getting you know killed. So basically it's a sakana. That's how he navigated the two rulings. But they're the same issues. One, he's very in favor. If you, he, you know, if you need a hearing aid, he'll tell you to wear it on Shabbos. The microphone was out, but the same issues. Another tshuva was Thanksgiving um, where he ruled permissively. And there's a whole scheme of chuvas that I feel I don't feel so guilty. I don't have too many doctors in the room, right? I don't have any, right? Good. Oh, sorry, one. Okay. So one is okay. So there's a lot of medical halacha. There's articles written about his he basically developed that whole field of halacha. Like in other words, I mentioned last week Rav Henkin, all the names of Gittin, the English names, how they're transliterated was Rav Henkin. That, that's, he's the authority. The calendars, the Ezra, that's Rav Henkin. The medical halacha is all Rav Moshe. That's, that's him. And they're discussing today, what would Rav Moshe say? We're talking about brain death. So there's a debate, what did he hold? You know, that's, that's, 
he is the person, right? He, he spent a lot of time studying the science. His son-in-law, Rabbi Tendler, uh, besides being a Rosh Hashiva, is a professor of biology, would spend a lot of time with him, explaining him all, explaining to him all the intricacies of the science. Okay, so that's I would say that's one of his greatest areas of psak. Um, many economic issues, he ruled very leniently. One of his opening tshuvas, which probably didn't endear him to the very very creating world, is you don't need to wear a yarmulke for work. It's an issue. Um, many things you could teach at a conservative school, although he drew these lines between orthodox and conservative. If somebody needed a job in a conservative Talmud Torah, he, he understood the economic realities. Um, he basically came with old world learning to a new world. This is the other visual. This is an academic book that just came out about a year ago in Hebrew about Rav Moshe. And it's basically a uh, halachic way in a changing world. He basically came from a totally different world and he basically learned about American technology and American society and he learned to navigate it. The medical stuff is not my focus and I don't feel, I feel a little guilty but not so guilty but I'm more focused on all the other things, how he juggled the groups and that's really what I'm mostly interested in discussing. So how did he work with these different groups? Okay, four objectives. One, how did he define orthodox versus not? We sort of hit it a little bit, but we'll hit it more. How did he, how is he responsive to the non-observant orthodox, right? That's two. How did he speak to the modern orthodox world and the yeshivish world? How did he juggle all that? So let's break that down, and we'll go through those points, and then we'll read that tshuva and contrast it to Rav Henkin. Okay, one, his ruling on Mechitza very clearly delineated orthodox versus conservative. He made it a no-go if you don't have a Mechitza. Number two, he said civil marriages are not valid. This was a big argument he had with Rav Henkin. So part of his motivation was it prevents Mamzerim, right? Because if somebody, let's say a reform rabbi, marry somebody in Temple Solel tonight, and we say that marriage is valid, then if they don't get a get, a halacha get, those, the woman gets remarried, those children are mamzerim, right? You know what mamzer is, right? You've met many of them, I think, right? Okay. So, so that's, that what he did was twofold. One, he was permissive towards, he didn't want to create divisions in Judaism, oh, a lot of these people we can't marry, because basically... Anyone who was married by someone reform or conservative or a Balchuva from there, you couldn't really marry. So that ruling kept us as one people. But at the same time, it delegitimated reform and conservative rabbis. He also went issues of Geras. He delegitimated them, you know. Rev Soloveitchik, as I, I don't I'm not an expert in this, had a more nuanced view. There were certain conservative rabbis that Rev Soloveitchik would say it depends on the conservative rabbi. Right? Certain ones he accepted their getting, certain ones he didn't. Rav Salik, to Rav Moshe, it was clear-cut. You're identified with that movement. You know, and history probably shows Rav Moshe right. Because how did, you know, it's true in 1950, it didn't look so different. But today it looks very different. So if anything, history would probably vindicate Rav Moshe's position. Yeah, but in the 50s, it was a threat. Today, it's a dying 
It's right. So I think a lot of You're saying the polemical stuff should go out because the times are different. No, he needed to do what he did at right. the time because the it was very was huge. Right, I say the it was not clear that we you and I could have been as easily conservative as Orthodox fifty years ago. Today, right. We're so much we're larger and stronger, that whole movement. There's right. It doesn't, it's not a threat. So I, he might have ruled maybe... Yes. More leniently. I think so. Right, but I'm saying it vindicates because he saw where it was going. 100%. From there, I'm saying right, it, right. his approach historically yeah. could be vindicated. You know, it was vindicated. Um, a biggie wasn't an actual tshuva. The famous, does anyone here know what the famous letter of 1956 is? I stumped you all. I got everything else you guys knew about. Okay. <laughs> Basically, in 1956, there's a whole issue. Can you do interdenominational uh, work with Reform and conservative rabbis? So many of the... Today, modern Orthodox is not the same modern Orthodox, and probably many of them would not... Modern Orthodox rabbis would not do interdenominational activities with Reform and conservative rabbis. Back then, it was very common. And Rav Soloveitchik himself didn't endorse it, but didn't condemn it either. So 11 Rosh Yeshivas, and this is a watershed moment, in 1956, my Rebbe was one of them, Rav David Lifshitz, but Rav Moshe was one of them also, signed a letter stating that you can't have anything to do with Reform and conservative rabbis. You can't recognize them as rabbis. And that also clearly defined who's in and who's out. Because again, it was only a question of degree. The conservative rabbi in 1950 wasn't much different than the modern Orthodox rabbi. Because he was, he was a Muslim of an, of an Orthodox institution. Very often. majority of them studied in an Orthodox institution. They were observant. They were learned. Um, you know, so it wasn't the shul population wasn't that different. The difference was, was there a mechitz or not? That probably was the only difference. If you went to a conservative shul, what? Microphone. Maybe. And a microphone. So Ramosha ruled against the microphone right. and against not having the machitza. But other than those issues, there really was no difference for many cases. Now, so I just showed you how he drew the lines. How was he open to the non-observant Orthodox? In other words, he didn't take a hardcore approach and say, if you're not observant, you're out. The opposite. He was very caring and empathetic. And as if you challenged what he felt were the Torah's values, you were reform or conservative, you were no good in his book. But if you were just a non-observant Jew who identified with orthodoxy, or even didn't identify but wasn't identified with something against the Torah, his rulings were very liberal and very open. Let me give you some examples. Um, it's not clear-cut. It is today, but not till his time. Can someone non-observant count for a minion? Right now, it's a given in our world that they do. Right? He ruled they could. There were some minority positions that allowed it. It wasn't clear cut. Right? That was his ruling. What he did is there's two main halakhic concepts that he really expanded their application. One is there are two types of apostates in Jewish law. One is called, if you learn Hulin, you'll know this. One is called Mumar Latayavan. A apostate because they desire things, and one is called mumer lahachas, an apostate because they're contrarian. They they're they're against you know religious beliefs. 
So what he basically said in many of these rulings is the reform and conservative rabbis, they hate the Torah. They are mumber lahachas, so they're out. The average guy who goes to work on Shabbos, he goes to shul to young Israel, he comes to the Ishkama minion, he opens a store, he's not an apostate, he's not, even though there's all these teachings, if someone doesn't keep Shabbos, it's like they worship a Vodazar, he goes, that doesn't apply today. He believes in it, he shows up to shul. He just has a big desire for money, he doesn't want to you know, be poor, so that's a mumer l'tayavon. So he ruled that these people are basically good people, right? It's a radical, again, in our world, it's a given, but that's because of him. If he didn't rule that, the shul probably wouldn't have the policies here that it has today, right? That's, that comes through him. Um, another concept that he uses is that the non-observant Jew is a tinak shenishba. He's like a captive baby. There's a principle in the Gemara that all these rules that apply to people that aren't religious, that are negative, we don't say that if a baby was taken away when they were a year old, okay, then, you know, it's not, is it their fault they're not religious? They didn't know better, right? That's what Tinuk Shanizba. So he also brought in the concept, because look, let's be honest, does really most non-Orthodox Jews not know anything about Orthodoxy? Now we could answer and say, well, they never experienced it internally, it's not the same thing as knowing a little bit about it from seeing the people walking to shul or reading about it or, or seeing the chosen, but you can't, it, it's a leap of faith to say that they're all Tinek Shanishmas. That was Ramosha Feinstein's leap of faith. Okay, So now we see, one, we discovered how he demarcated the lines. Two, we saw how he's very open to non-observant people. Number three, giving honors in shul to non-observant people. He was very lenient about it. As they, there's chuvas that I've read. You know, somebody's not religious. They want to get an honor on, Shab, you know, on Shabbos or the high holidays. He says it's fine, right? So he was not, he was trying to draw these people close. And I was, as long as you didn't challenge the philosophical principles of the Torah, he was very, very open, okay, and very permissive. Okay, so now three and four. How did he simultaneously rule for modern orthodoxy and for the yeshiva world? So let's, we're going to discuss some of the tshuvas, but let's first talk, I guess, historically. First of all, he had one big, I mean, in the yeshiva world, that's his world. You know, Moshe Feinstein was the chair of the Aguda Halach, you know, whatever the Halachic, Motsikadole Torah, whatever you want to call that. The council, I guess, of Torah sages would be the best English translation. Um, that was his world. But what were his ties to the modern world? So one, he had a lot of ties with Yeshiva University. Rav Soloveitchik was his cousin. They were very close. They used to call each other every yomtiv. Rav, Rav uh, Soloveitchik would send his students to Rav Moshe for halakhic decisions. Rav Soloveitchik denoys Paskin. His son-in-law was a YU graduate and a Rosh Hashiv in YU. And like I mentioned in the beginning of the class, his best student went to teach in YU. So he was very connected to the modern Orthodox world. It wasn't, he had a strong connection with it. Um, just as an interesting aside, when I was 18 years old, I know Rabdavid Feinstein, 
and I was asking him where I should go. I want to go to yeshiva with college. So he mentioned some Haredi schools, and he mentioned YU in the same sentence. It wasn't that he looked down at it. It was just another option. Okay, there's this, this, and that. So they didn't look down at YU. Um, that's the sociological piece. Now through the, the, the Pesach, how did he do it? This is what I've noticed. All his tshuvas relating with modern issues are two-tiered. On one hand, the, the reasoning is Haredi. For example, we'll read Bas Mitzvah. He doesn't like it. Haredim will like that. Now again, Haredim today is celebrated, but you have to roll back 50 years. Right? They don't like it. He doesn't like it, but he permits it. So it's two-tiered. The Psach is acceptable. The modern person just reads the Psach, and the Haredi person reads the reasoning. And he does this with every issue. Thanksgiving, same thing. He permits it. Doesn't like it. Chol uh, Yisrael, he, it's a little, di- little different. He permits it, but he says about Nefesh Yachmir, somebody who's stricter. You know, he's writing every tshuva to two audiences. Now, let's take a contrast. The Chazunish, who was the greatest, you know, Haredi posek, only wrote to the Haredi world. You know, for Varen Cutler wrote a tshuva. He didn't write many. Also, it would be to the Haredi world, right? And a modern, you know, let's say of Soloveitchik or the Sridesh, their tshuvas were for modern Orthodox people. They're not writing their tshuvas for people in Lakewood. That, that wasn't the goal of their tshuvas. His tshuvas were written for two totally different populations, uh, which I think is pretty neat. Um, so that's, that's all the, the points. Um, any questions on any of this? No? Okay. It's clear, like everybody got the, the main points. Okay. So let's take a look at his tshuva about, I guess we'll end with this. I'll end with one other thing about um, Bas Mitzvah. And I want to refer back, I'm going to give out to those of you, I don't know if we're going to read the whole thing, the tshuva of Hankins. I just want to compare and contrast. There's one cool thing, is even though the ruling is the same, the reasoning is very different. And the implications of that could be very, very broad. In other words, tshuvas, it's not just important to read the actual tshuva, it's also important to look at the reasoning. So, we're going to look at Ramboshas. Okay. So he's talking about a basmit. So everybody have it? It's Kufdalid, right? You have it on a different print. Um, so to see the one you have. Okay. Because I have it a little different. Okay, you're right. Okay. Okay, fine. It's the same one. Let me read it. For those who desire, I'm going to just translate loosely. I want to make a bas mitzvah. This is out in shul. Again, maybe because that was a reform and conservative thing. This is a way of demarking it. Not even at night. This is key because a bas mitzvah is not a mitzvah. It's a rishus. It's just a birthday party. So you can't just make a regular birthday party in a shul. Af Now that's just an illusion. There's a thing. Why are we allowed to eat in shul? Because there's a thing that when shuls were made, we made a stipulation that we can 
have kiddish clubs in shul and kiddishes and all sorts of good things. Um, and that's like a thing in the Gemara. So he's saying, you can't even go on that. Now this is cool, linguistically, what he does here. For a ceremonious Shabbat mitzvah, whenever he uses English, he's distancing himself, right? From it. He's saying, this is a foreign thing. He's using English. That, that's like a clue that he doesn't like something. Right? <coughs> it's basically something permitted. It's not a mitzvah. And hevobahama means it's pretty stupid. That's the best way to translate it. It's not, not good. Okay? And certainly this Shemakar Bame reformer, the conservator, where it comes from, you know, the big bad guys on the other side of Sterling Road, right? So it's out. Barak, and if a father wants to throw a party in his house, Rishai, it's permitted. Well, I'd save a lot of money if I follow this ruling, right? We'd have to like do anything, do that much. Avo ein shum inyan v'smach l'chashiv zes tvar mitzvah sudas mitzvah. Don't get the idea that this is anything religious. Basically, okay, you're a little disturbed by it, but you have to put it in the context. He's living in 1950s. They didn't do this in Europe. It's something new. It's radical that he permits it, but again, he has to go in a way that that it doesn't seem like he's embracing it. It's just a birthday party. Okay. This is, I think, the most fascinating part of the tshuva. The Aishi Kaili. Now, this is language, if you've learned Gemara Beitza, that they use if a uh, halakhic authority had the soldiers. In other words, if he had the authority, he wants to do something but doesn't feel he has the authority. I would abolish in this country. You'll feel a little better now. God Seder bar mitzvah shalabanam. Boys bar mitzvahs, right? Kishi yedua shazel zelov maybe zeh shomish lekrava latorah lemitzvahs. Because this doesn't make anyone more religious. Aflo es a bar mitzvah. Aflo l'shachas. Why is he saying that? Because a bar mitzvah, in his historical context, was a checkout party. That's the last time the kid was coming to shul maybe except Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, it also meant that since people weren't observant, more non-observant people were driving to shul. Now, he doesn't see much of an upshot to it. Okay? As I just said, and other prohibitions. So this is fascinating. And this shows you a lot of insight into his psaac, and I'll mention something else. That that is permitted verbally. It has some element of mitzvah. It's hard to abolish. Now, what does that mean, Hunuk In Eastern Europe, they didn't really celebrate bar mitzvahs. You get an aliyah, somebody put their arm around you, give you a little shot of schnapps and some kichel, and that was it. So American bar mitzvahs was also an innovation. He doesn't like it, and but he can't. Here's the greatest posik in the world, and he's admitting he doesn't have the authority to abolish something because why? It's not per se that a bas mitzvah is worse than a bar mitzvah. One was established. This is the way Refined Steed's mind works. 
One was an established practice, a bar mitzvah. So as much as he hates it or doesn't like it, he's not going to challenge an established practice. Yet a bas mitzvah was just starting to be a thing in orthodoxy. So if he could, if he could stop, if he could arrest the development of that, he would. It wasn't so much anti-girl. He didn't like the concept in general, but he had no... If bas mitzvahs were first and were widely spread and bar mitzvahs weren't, he'd write the reverse. Now, I pointed something out to you all last week. A rubric, and you see it here. Do you remember the rubric I mentioned about poskim? Whenever there's an argument among poskim, usually, they all have like a different main thing they're pulling on. So I mentioned that Rav Henkin... It was very much minhag in practice. In other words, there's textual truth, there's conceptual truth, there's custom truth, there's Kabbalistic truth, there's truth in wanting to be choshesh for all the days, for all the different opinions, right? So, when, very often when you see an argument, they're not arguing factually, they're arguing what is the predominant view of halacha in their mind. In other words, the Vilna Gon I mentioned in the Chazanish, textual truth is the most important thing. The Vilna Gon could care less if every Ashkenazic shul in the world puts flowers in their shul on Shavuos. If he thinks it's Chukasakim, based, meaning imitating non-Jews, based on his reading of the Gemara, he could care less. It means nothing to him. Ramosha Feinstein, no way. If everyone's doing it, or a lot of people... Even if it doesn't make sense, he'll figure out a way to make it make sense. Right? That's how he works. The briskers, it's all about lumbus. They don't care what the text says. They don't care what the, what the um, practice is. They care what the conceptual truth is. And they'll rule both strict and more lenient based on that. Right? Like if Soloveitchik has this thing that you're allowed to shave, I think, during the sphere, Right? So I'm not comfortable with that, right? In other words, if you need to do it for work, do it for work. But I'm more of this school of thought, personally. If the minhag is not to do it, okay, now it sort of is to do it for work, but let's say, take that out of the mix. You have kids in high school. I don't care what the lumbus is that, oh, well, it's this, it's parallel to this type of availus. If for a thousand years nobody practiced that, I don't really care. You know, that doesn't resonate to me. Right? I'm more res- this resonates to me more. So to them, more it's the conceptual truth. A big problem of Soloveitchik has is kidneyos. If you go by the conceptual truth, potatoes should be prohibited. It's a legume. To Rav Moshe, that would be silly. He, Rav Soloveitchik actually raises that potatoes should be prohibited. He doesn't go there because then the people would have starved to death, right? In Eastern, in Eastern Europe, but. The women would like it, right? They wouldn't have to peel. What? He said the boot should be permitted, not potato should be removed. Right, but I'm saying if you're going the other way. So Ramosha would never, the question wouldn't get off the table. Because Ramosha would say, what are you talking about? Kitnios is a minhug. He has a chuva about this. What was accepted we do. You can't extend the minhug. It doesn't make sense. So I think this is very important for all of you to understand that every posik, when you hear a ruling, when you read something, think what is the driving, the prima facie view of the posting. A lot of Hasidic or Sephardic poskim, it may be Kabbalah. So they're not argu- it's not a factual argument. There's very little 
I mean, occasionally, this is more to me what drives arguments. The Mishnaburah cares about the majority of the opinions, right? So, even if he thinks the truth is X, but the majority of the Akronim say Y, he'll, he'll pask in that way, right? So that's it. So you see from this tshuva that minhag is what drives Ramosha, right? Um, okay, where are we here? Um, fine, I don't think we need to read the rest of it. The rest of it's also about a dishwasher, and I don't think that's so interesting. So contrasting that to Rebhenkin from last week, the only thing you need to look at is the last, the third paragraph, Amnam, right? Everybody who was here remembers, I hope, those who weren't here, what does he say about it? Now, in the first paragraph, he does share some of Rav Moshe's concerns about Kilo Shabbos. But, he says in the third paragraph, It's our obligation to educate girls in the Derech HaTorah. And to save what we can. So he sees value in Abbas Mitzvah. Unlike Rav Moshe, who calls it a birthday party and nonsense, Rav Henkin sees value in it. And they lived in the same time. It's not that Rav Henkin, you know, lived 10 years ago and he didn't. They have different worldviews. And what does he do, Rav Henkin? He connects it to historical precedents. The Kama Tarku Rabbanim Bepolin. And how much did the rabbis bother? Ba'od Yisod Bate Sefer Beis Yaakov. They, I told you, it was a big innovation that girls had schools. Okay? So that was a change. So he's, Rav Hankin's saying things change. They need to change. Shehevi Tova Rabba Layadasham that helped Judaism. Vagan Khan. Right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he basically says that this is something that will help bring girls back. And so, again, the ruling is the same. It's both would tell you it's permitted. But their attitude towards changes in the environment, let's say, due to feminism, are very different. Rav Henkin could see potential. could see potential good. Again, he's not saying you could do anything. There's halacha. But if he doesn't see it as a violation, it could potentially be a good thing. And Rav Moshe doesn't see it as a good thing. He'll allow it because he doesn't have a prohibition against it. Maybe it would have been hard to prohibit it. Um, but that's a very big difference. Um, that's basically it. I'll just make a plug for next week. But any questions on any of this? So you now know where Moshe Feinstein is, right? Okay, good. All right, so next week, I think will be very interesting. Um,